It's Jared. Before we get to today's show, I want to say thank you. Thank you to everyone who has listened to our content, shared our Instagram account on your own, or simply followed our account, or supported us in any way. I cannot say thank you enough. When we started this, we did not imagine that it would get this big, this quick, and we are so excited to continue making content and continue this quest with all of you. So with that said, here's the show. So for those of you who have listened to some of our previous episodes, you know that I usually start the show with some anecdote, something lighter that kind of eases into a bigger political topic. But for today's show, I won't be doing that for a few reasons. And obviously, by the title of the show, we're going to be talking about FGM, or female genital mutilation. And I don't know really how to sugarcoat this because it can't be. This is not veganism where I can intro with my food or bidets where I can talk about the hoarding of toilet paper, right? This is an issue that deserves to be talked about straight away, not covered up in any way, shape, or form. Additionally, I think this is something that is really either not understood at all or misunderstood, and I fall into that category, no doubt. So I don't want to come on and provide information that might not either be correct or might be insensitive or is simply not in alignment with the mission of Contested. So with that said, we're just going to hop straight into the show. Today's guest is Sara Hussein, the sister of our producer and contributor Adam Hussein, but in her own right, one of the smartest people I know. And she has been doing research on FGM while at Stanford University and has been a supporter from the beginning, so I can think of no better person to be talking about FGM with. So with that said, stay tuned. Hi, Sarah. Hey. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. So Based on the intro I just gave, it's clear that I don't really know a whole lot about FGM. In fact, the first time I had heard FGM, I had zero idea what it stood for. So for all of our viewers, what is FGM? Yeah, so FGM stands for female genital mutilation. It also could be referred to as female genital cutting. So you may also see the acronym FGC. And so it's defined as the cutting or removal of female genitalia, or more broadly defined as basically just any injury to female genitalia. And so there's four different types of FGM. And so the first type is known as a clitoridectomy. And so this is the removal of the clitoris. For those who don't know, um, the clitoris is one of the most sensitive nerves in the female body, and it's responsible for sexual pleasure. So cutting that out would cause a lot of pain. And then the second type, it's similar to the first type, but it also includes the removal of the labia minora. And so this is a thin fold of tissue that's in the inner folds of the vagina. And so the first two types are the most common types that are performed. About 85% of FGM procedures that are performed are either type 1 or type 2. And then type 3, this is the most extreme one. It's known as infibulation. And so this is where you would cut either the labia minora or majora and use that piece of skin to suture the vagina close. And you would basically leave a small hole for urine output and menstruation. And so 
it's very, very traumatic procedure and it's very, very painful. And then type four is basically any other harmful procedure. So this could be piercing, burning, scraping, or just any other type of cutting. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even realize that there were three types and type three in specific seems excruciatingly inhumane. And then just for kind of the magnitude of FGM, because I had not, as I said, heard about it. And I would consider myself someone who follows the news and kind of more obscure issues pretty religiously. But where does FGM occur and about how many females do we expect, uh, you know, undergo FGM? Yeah, so it is most commonly practiced in Africa, the Middle East, and I would say like Malaysia and Indonesia. But despite like common misconception, like it is actually practiced worldwide. It is practiced here in America. It's practiced in Europe. And so a lot of people, I think, want to tag this as like a third world issue, but it Mm. isn't a global issue, even though it is most heavily concentrated in the areas I mentioned. And so I would say currently... 200 million women live with female genital mutilation. Whoa. Yeah, it's a lot. And every year, 3 million girls are probably subject to some form of female genital mutilation or cutting. That's an insane amount. I mean, 200 million, that's wildly large. And yeah, that's that's crazy. So so we have kind of the general layout here that basically the types kind of go in a descending order. I mean, obviously all of them are equally horrible in their own right, but just for kind of an understanding purpose. And then I I would imagine, I mean, I feel like the the impacts here are are relatively clear, right? This is not positive in any way, but you could kind of just detail either mental trauma, the physiological issues that result in it, cultural issues, anything that kind of like precipitates from FGM. So as you said, like it is a very, very traumatic experience just in itself. And so that obviously contributes to a lot of like mental and psychological issues in terms of PTSD, anxiety disorders. People also tend to kind of lose their trust with their caregivers when when they undergo this experience. Also, I think for women, especially we live in a world where like um, we're inundated with like negative body image stereotypes every day. And so this procedure only contributes to that more in feeling that there's something wrong with you that something's been cut out from you and then on top of that there's so many physiological complications as you can imagine so like short term there's infection the hemorrhage pain um, and then even like death sometimes can um, arise as a result of FGM Um, and then in terms of long-term complications there's also so many pregnancy complications Uh, a lot of women have a lot of trouble getting pregnant and then especially if you think of the type 3 giving birth is extremely painful a lot of times you have to cut open the vagina for the pregnancy and then they have to undergo the procedure again where the vagina is re-sewn after the pregnancy and so just the entire process is super painful and just extremely negative experience yeah i mean that's horrible I kind of want to go back to the physiological a little bit. Would you clarify, are these practices done primarily by cultural figures or medical professionals for the most part? Yeah, that's actually an important distinction. So this procedure actually isn't performed in a clinical setting. It's often performed by an older woman in the community, and it's often done in a private setting somewhere in the back of her house, but it's not done in a hospital where there are the resources to treat hemorrhages or swelling or infections that could arise as a result. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think what struck me especially is that it's other women too. And I would assume if this is a longstanding kind of 
cultural practice. These are women who also had the procedure done to them at one point who are yeah. now doing the procedure on top of it. And I think that is like a totally destructive system in and of itself, because if you're having people who know the pain of this and then are constantly contributing to it, probably because they have no choice of their own, but it's simply a role that you're forced into that kind of leads to this continuation of this system. Yeah, um, and often it's it's all these women know, right? Like they're they're contributing to this cycle because they think what they're doing is right. They think they're making the right choices for these girls because that's the culture and cycle that they've been brought up in themselves. Yeah, and then as far as response, so as I said, I had not heard about this, and well, it, I definitely do not doubt it goes on in America. A lot of at least American mainstream media does not cover it. So what has kind of been either the recourse domestically, internationally, or maybe in concentrated areas of FGM? So in terms of legality, most countries right now have deemed FGM to be illegal. There are um, obviously still countries that are passing these laws, but other than that, for the most part, it is considered illegal. Also, like the UN has deemed FGM a human rights violation. So in terms of just international response, I think it is kind of known that this is a negative practice and it does kind of need to stop. And then as more people become aware of the issue as a whole, they can express their support in stopping the practice. Yeah, I mean, to me, this seems obviously like a no-brainer issue. I don't know anyone who would actively support this for all the reasons that have been stated already. To me, though, the I still feel that if this is a cultural issue being enforced by victims themselves, or you've got into a really nasty spot of legal action and public policy really not being a great actualizer and actor here, because right, like, what are you supposed to do to uproot massive cultural practices that are, are wrong? Like this is to me, I think, as you mentioned, has to be a conversation starter first, and then a shift within opposed to legal action because what you can't send policemen into like every back home as you were saying of a woman all the time just to check if this is happening or even if it is reported then you know where do you go from there and much less would little girls have the ability or wherewithal to report it so i don't know this just seems like a really nasty cycle all the way around yeah, no, it, it definitely is. And and on top of that, like in a lot of these countries where it is commonly practiced, government just isn't the main institution in their lives. It's not the most respected institution. So even if governments have policies against FGM, if the culture is mandating FGM, they're going to listen to those rules before they listen to like legal action and legal policies. So if that's the case, though, then how do we target FGM? And specifically, the thing that's keeping me held back, besides the fact that it's kind of a self-perpetuating system, what are the main factors that keep FGM in place? Because for something this abhorrent, you usually think it'll run its course and you know some foreign actor who kind of sees the moral wrongs in this would come and change it. But why is FGM such an ongoing practice that affects over 200 million women? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of religious and cultural reasons, like, first off, because it is kind of seen as an 
ancient tradition or an ancient rite that women need to go through just as a rite of passage. And so these people are in a mindset of wanting to control these ancient traditions. And so therefore they're going to want to perpetuate the cycle and perpetuate this practice. Also for a lot of immigrants, for example, who have come to America or Europe where it may also be continued, this is kind of like the only tenet of their culture that they can continue practicing in a world where they're being forced to assimilate. And so it's just another part of their culture that they want to hold on to. And then there's some conversation about how it's heavily tied to Islam. And so it's believed to be a required religious procedure. And so somewhere along its origin story, it kind of just became adopted and endorsed by Islam as this required procedure as an equivalent to male circumcision. And so even though it isn't supported by any religious texts, and most Muslim scholars are against the practice of FGM as a whole because it isn't mandated by the religion, there are obviously some communities that still continue to practice FGM or because of this belief that it is the equivalent of male circumcision and so women and men should be treated equally. And then obviously there's the patriarchy that always shows up in our lives. It's a way of controlling women in society. And so in a lot of those communities, a lot of men will often not marry women unless they are circumcised, right? Mm. And so the social pressure kind of acts on these women to want to be circumcised in a way because they want to get married. They don't want to face social embarrassment. They also want to fit in with the women around them and feel like they're a part of that culture. So they will also kind of choose to undergo FGM for that reason. But yeah, like overall, like it is just like a way of society kind of reinstilling those virtues of women being less than men, women only existing in relation to men so that like women can't feel sexual pleasure, but they're, they only exist to provide children and to allow men to have sexual pleasure. Yeah, and I think you touch on a really interesting point and maybe one that wrongly went through my mind initially, which it was like, oh, this, you know, this is the same thing as circumcision. But um, obviously it's not, right? And obviously there is very little health negatives from being circumcised or very little health detriments I've seen. But can you just blatantly explain exactly why, say, like male circumcision is not nowhere close to what FGM is? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you think about male circumcision just for what it is, male circumcision is the removal of penal foreskin, right? It's the removal of skin, whereas FGM, you're most often removing a nerve. And so just in itself, what you're removing is completely different and of a completely different magnitude. Also, male circumcision has a lot of benefits. It um, promotes hygiene, it prevents STDs, it prevents penile cancer in the future, whereas FGM, like, you only see the negative impacts. It has so many physiological complications that we talked about earlier, and so many psychological ones as well. So they're almost, like, incomparable in a way. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction to make, because as I was saying, on the surface, it, it seems like, oh, you know, relatively doing the same thing, but evidently uh, it's not. So then the next thing I kind of want to shift to is why is this not so widely known then, right? Yes, maybe it might be isolated, as you were saying, to certain regions or cultures in specific, but if the U.S. is known for anything, it's intruding on other people's beliefs they find abhorrent and trying to change them. So why is FGM not one of these issues that the U.S. is saying we need to change? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with just the culture of silence around FGM. I think like you were even touching on this by saying that you didn't, you hadn't heard about this issue before, but a lot of it is because it just is not talked about. 
um, within these communities and outside of these communities. There's a lot of there's a lot of taboo that's associated with the practice. It's not talked about within the communities themselves because I think, uh, actually I'm not sure why it's not talked about in the communities, but it just <laughs> isn't talked about in the communities. And, and often girls are told after they've had the procedure not to talk about it, not to tell anyone that they've had it done. And so a lot of that just kind of keeps perpetuating the practice as well like a lot of women will talk amongst themselves that they don't necessarily support the continuation of the practice but because of the culture of silence and shame and fear associated with talking about it in the open it tends to be continued with this like culture of silence still existing around it yeah I mean I guess it just that's kind of the completing piece there and the whole idea that this cycle is going to perpetuate itself especially if women themselves aren't don't say anything and it becomes normalized and then they kind of buy into it wrongfully and then kind of become a perpetrator of it later in life because it never really leaves that community it just is a normalized practice and then as far as kind of the last thing we can touch on is what can an individual do to stop fgm right obviously there's a whole debate that kind of goes on between foreign intervention and in, and in subjective morality and things like that that makes it a little bit hesitant for, say, like the U.S. to go into a country in Africa and say, you know, you have to stop FGM, things like that. So what is, on like an individual level, perhaps, something that you can do in addition to starting a conversation? Yeah, you're right. There is a lot of touchy or gray area um, with like America or Europe or just a a Western country kind of going into Mm -hmm. these communities and telling them to stop it. But Unfortunately, a lot of the change has to stem from the communities themselves Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, creating the conversation, as you said. In terms of individuals themselves, I would say a lot of it has to do with breaking the culture as a whole and bringing out the issue into the public sphere. So raising awareness for it, talking about it amongst peers to make it a normalized issue to talk about in the public. Um, I think that just in itself will create so much more awareness and so much more action against it as a whole. Um, I think also there's a lot of like really, really cool NGOs that are working to create a conversation within these communities that maybe we aren't in the place to um, facilitate. And so supporting those NGOs to stop the issue uh, within those communities is very, very helpful as well. Um, And then again, even though um, we said that the legal or governments aren't the most important institutions in these communities lives. Policy still does kind of go a long way um, to just kind of establish the norm that this isn't an accepted practice. And so supporting those policies um, that are being passed through the government also is definitely a, a big thing that individuals can do to help stop FGM. Sara, thank you so much. And you've definitely enlightened me. And I think for a lot of other people who might not have been even aware of what FGM stood for, this, this could go a long way. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for allowing me to come on and talk. Thank you for listening to this episode of Contested. If you like what you heard, please visit our website at contestedpolitics.com. Additionally, I'm happy to announce that Contested Politics is on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. So I would really appreciate it if you would subscribe and leave a review on any of those platforms. Lastly, I want to extend a huge thank you to Sara Hussein for coming on to the podcast. With that said, thank you for helping us understand politics together and stay tuned for more episodes.